Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, huge, huge pod today. Mm-hmm. Great interview coming up in a bit with legendary Tennessee coach Philip Fulmer. Honestly, one of the coolest things I've gotten to do in this business. So stick around for that. I also want to react to the Spencer Rattler to South Carolina news. Of course, that was something that we talked about a ton for a two-day stretch before the early signing period. Got a lot of early signing period things to get to as well. Christmas travel in figuring out, continuing our Christmas theme there to end. But first, before we do all of that, Deion Sanders changed recruiting forever. Yep. All right, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because two things can be true at the same time. One is that the number one recruit in the country deciding at the last minute that he's flipping from Florida State to FCS Jackson State and HBCU is stunning. When you've got people like Bruce Feldman saying it's the most shocking recruiting decision they've seen in decades in this business, yeah, that is significant. Jackson State hasn't had a player drafted since 2008. Hmm. Mike Renner, our friend over at Pro Football Focus, He had the tweet that no FCS defensive player has gone in the first round since 2008. It's one thing to flip to Alabama or Georgia on signing day for the number one overall recruit, but obviously we're in a different universe talking about the number one overall recruit signing up to play for an HBCU. And I'm not trying to minimize the significance of that, but I'll say this. The other thing that I think is true is I don't necessarily think this changed the game forever. This is just in the beginning of the first ever NIL era in recruiting, right? We're talking about the very beginning of these these NIL recruitments and that coinciding with what happened with Travis Hunter. Those two things are separate but equal. And let me explain that because I saw a lot of people kind of confusing those two things, trying to sort all this out. This situation is extremely unique. Mm Are we suddenly gonna see FCS players start to set up seven-figure NIL deals as has been reported with Hunter to land players? I don't think so, I don't think so. And we'll like we'll wait and see on the figures that come out with this. It's been reported that because of Deion Sanders, his connection with Barstool, who's owned by Penn National Gaming, that there are seven-figure deals that are being put in place with Travis Hunter going to Jackson State. So. Why did this happen? Hunter's the number one cornerback in the country, in addition to being the number one overall recruit. Deion Sanders, probably the number one cover corner in the history of the sport. Learning from Deion Sanders for a year or two, however long Travis Hunter wants to stay at Jackson State, is extremely unique. Nobody else can offer that. All right, it's not like Walter Payton, God rest his soul, is able to be like, hey, I'm the coach at an FCS program, running back who's a number one recruit in the country, come play for me. Mm-hmm. I also have this seven-figure backing that we can make this happen. Very unique set of circumstances because not everybody has Dion's connections. And maybe there's a little bit of that motivation with Dion because he wants to stick it to his alma mater. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see kind of how that plays out, what that relationship looks like. A lot of people speculated that he's using it as a bargaining chip for when he says, hey, Florida State, now you really need to hire me. And we'll, we'll kind of see about how that could play out because there's been talks about Florida State can't hire somebody without a college degree. Technically, Dion never graduated from Florida State because he left early. 
Yo, we need to have that's like, holding a, like you back. I guess Barstool could do this, but like a version of Billy Madison where Dion goes like back to school at Florida State to like yes. finish his degree so he can get their head coaching job. It's like, look, Dion, you have all the qualifications, but rules are rules, buddy. And he's just sitting there with this quad with his flat bill on, just doing Kim homework. You're giving in the company to Eric? <laughs> All-time movie, mm-hmm. all-time movie. Yes, I would sign up for that documentary as well. I know Barstool has the documentary with Dion that that they've been doing for like, I think over a year now with him about trying to make HBCUs more relevant. Mm-hmm. This being probably a really significant way to do that and all the FaceTime that they're going to get. So even if it's not the case, this is still a little bit more of a Dion thing probably than an FCS thing or even an HBCU thing. If you've ever been around Dion, which I had a couple of instances in which I, I got to see him at these Under Armour All-America practices, you talk about guys that have an aura. Mm-hmm. Dion's got an aura. When he talks, people listen. When he goes somewhere, all eyes are on him. And that's just the way that he operates. So it's a bit stunning to hear Florida State say, oh yeah, we didn't know at all that Jackson State was gonna be coming in at the 11th hour because Dion's not exactly Mr. come out of nowhere guy. He's just not. It's very loud, right? Like, I I tend to think that Florida State just wasn't doing its proper due diligence despite the fact that Travis Hunter was committed to the program for 20 months. I applaud the statement where he comes out and he's talking about following in the footsteps of Jerry Rice and Doug Williams and Walter Payton, these guys who have played at HBCUs. Times have changed a lot in the last few decades and we no longer have dudes like Steve McNair who get ignored by Power 5 programs. Wednesday's news was so stunning because of how much things change and Lord knows they're continuing to change. Mike Farrell of Rivals, who we've had on this show before. Mm He had the tweet that I think everybody saw, and Will, you definitely saw this because you quote tweeted yep. this. So this was just sitting right there. It was the lowest hanging fruit that there was on 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 Wednesday. Nobody, even Mike, wouldn't deny that. Um, but Mike had the tweet where he said, "We've now reached the point where you can pay players to come to your school." Ah, and just now. People, Yesterday was the day. <laughs> Yesterday was the day, of course. And a bunch of people piled on because he worded the tweet incorrectly. Mm-hmm. If you replied with a picture of Eric Dickerson with a gold trans M, hey, you weren't the only one. Have an original thought. <laughs> Mike actually wasn't even referencing Travis Hunter. He was talking about another deal, which he explained in a follow-up video where he was like, hey, I'm not an idiot. I know players have been getting paid for decades. Go watch the follow-up video. It's actually pretty funny. I respect Mike so much for coming out and doing that instead of just watching all these people quote tweet him all day. I'm sure that was just brutal to watch, but he said, look, yeah, I understand this dynamic, but here's the difference right now. If this type of thing happens 10 years ago, maybe if it happens three years ago, Jackson State is under NCAA investigation tomorrow Mm -hmm. because there is no way on God's green earth that you would ever think about trying to pull something like that if you're Jackson State. The difference now, and the point that Mike was trying to make, is that the NCAA has essentially given up on the compliance element of this. Lane, Chizik, they both got dragged for saying that players are going to where they can get paid the most, and Chizik got dragged more so than Kiffin because Kiffin is still so fully immersed in the sport and as a head coach who actually you know is dealing with these things it's treated differently than Chizik and everybody throws out the Cam Newton stuff and all that but 
Now people are saying because there's no real governing body to regulate this stuff, and instead of just picking and choosing like the NCAA used to do with cracking down on this these blatant violations, it's kind of just madness at this point. And there's, you know, Dabo's talking about tampering and all these different things. <laughs> Dabo's been talking about tampering for 20 years. Listen, if a rule change doesn't benefit Dabo, it's evil and a sin, according to Dabo. Yeah, I love hearing about Dabo complain about the rules when he's making $93 million right. to adjust. Just, just a thought. Poor, poor little Dabo. But in the end, welcome to capitalism. Mm-hmm. All right, college, college football has tried to deny that it's a capitalist business forever. And now it's basically just saying, eh, we did our best. <laughs> there, look, like there's too much money in it. And they're telling us, hey, we don't really care. We think that you, the college football world, you're still gonna consume this sport more than ever. And to a certain extent, they're right. People say, oh, NIL is ruining the sport. I don't know. I can't think of a time when I was watching football on a Saturday this past fall and I said to myself, man, this sucks. Thanks a lot, NIL. Mm -hmm. Will, did you ever have that thought? No, I mean, not even a little bit. And I think you made a really good point with NCAA compliance. I think they kind of use this iron hammer against these like non-blue blood programs. Like you look at how, you know, Ole Miss got punished and, and you know, uh, versus, you know, like UNC and the whole like basketball scandal they had where that just got swept under the rug. And so it's almost like, you know, the NIL is obviously going to benefit the top teams, but it's not like Alabama needed the NIL to win all these championships. And like we were talking about the other day or yesterday texting about this with A&M and Georgia, it's like having all these stars doesn't really guarantee that you win a championship. It helps, and we're both very pro stars. We're very, very like, you're the one who like keyed me in on that. You pretty much have to have a certain level of talent to get to that point. But at the same time, there was always an uneven playing field. And you're kidding yourself if you're thinking like, well, back in the day when things were fair, you know, these schools didn't have this. And, and I'll say real quick, you were talking about Cam Newton and, and I'll also bring up, you know, Reggie Bush. These are two guys that were given hell throughout their whole lives for essentially doing something that we're proud of now that we're pumped about. And I've always thought this is how it should be. I think that, like you said, it's capitalism, especially with something like NIL, which is just straight compensation. It's like, you bring this amount of value, you get this amount of result. Um, and, and obviously, you know, if it's a recruit, you can't guarantee that, but who cares? I don't like, you know me, I'm never gonna cry about booster money. I'm just not. So, so point being, it's funny, like when we look back and say, you know, these guys, like Reggie Bush had to like give up his Heisman and give a whole thing and get treated like he had that scarlet letter A on his chest. And you gotta think how our kind of sense of morality has changed that the NCAA has decided that they just don't care anymore. <laughs> It's crazy to see that and the way that this has all taken shape because I do agree that times have changed and watching this early signing period on Wednesday was definitely more evidence of that. Mm -hmm. I think if you're one of those people that's sitting here saying, wow, NIL has totally ruined the sport, I, I think you're kind of using this as more of a scapegoat because we, like as fans, when something happens that we don't like or maybe we're not used to, we can blame it on the new thing. Mm -hmm. That's just the way that this always works. It's right off and it's ironic no that it, it's ruining the game. Exactly, right? <laughs> um, shout out to Mike Bobo. It's, it's so ironic that a kid deciding he was going to Jackson State instead of Florida State is what sparked this discussion on Wednesday, right? Who would have expected that? If we would have heard that, oh, hey, Alabama dropped off a bag and you know got this kid who was you know, number four overall recruit in the country, let's say Luther Burden or something like that, who mm -hmm. ends up signing with Mizzou. If we found out that Georgia had swooped in at the 11th hour with you know a promise of seven-figure deal or something like that, 
we would have treated it differently than somebody going from Florida State to Jackson State, but now there's the outcry because the traditional power was harmed. When in right. reality, if you look at the recruiting rankings, you're still seeing more of the same. It's not that this is drastically changing overnight. It wasn't, um, so like, I think that if you were just consuming all this on Wednesday, I I was I was at least entertained by it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought there were a lot of different things that were taken into consideration, and we'll get to a couple more of the the signing day takeaways from the SEC side of this. I know many listening to this were entertained by what happened with Travis Hunter, but to be honest, part of it was because it was Florida State, and it happened literally a day after Mike Norvell got an extension for going five and seven. <laughs> Easy, easy place to pile on, and the Twitter spaces were electric. I just want to say, too, man, Florida State has a 13th-rated recruiting class without him. That's number one in the state of Florida by, like, 30 places, and number two is UCF. So, like, at the end of the day, like, Florida State is still fine. That's funny, but, like, what you just said, I mean, I don't want to, like, minimize this at all, but at the end of the day, it's about that bag, man. You know what I'm saying? Why hasn't this happened before? The presence of the bag. The bag is the variable, right? It's not that this, and like, I think it's all, I'm not, you know, decrying it, I'm not saying it's bad, but there's a reason why this hasn't happened before. The bag appeared. And if Deion Sanders, like you said, he was a great DB, if he was at, you know, a random school, if he was at UAB, he probably could have pulled the same thing with the presence of the bag. So I know, like, I the, the spaces were funny, we can dump on Mike Norvell for all the stuff he's done, but at the end of the day, like, you, this should still be a happy day for FSU, but it went so bad. Let me let me say this real quick. Was the FSU, like the Deion Sanders jersey burning, was that the saddest jersey burning you've ever seen? That tweet was deleted so quickly, too. <laughs> <laughs> within, like, I think three minutes of quote tweeting that, within it might mean too much. I think that person had deleted that tweet. Yep. <laughs> that, I mean, it has to be. number. I mean, like, you could go back to, like, the LeBron stuff or whatever. LeBron was obviously, like... He was there for 10 years. Dion has been retired and out of FSU. And an FSU legend burning his jersey as a grown man is the most loser move I think I've ever seen. It's up there. It's pretty sad. Why, why do people burn jerseys? What's what's the point? Right. What message yeah. are you really sending? Setting my own money on fire. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put a bow on this. I, I think it's fair to say that recruiting has obviously changed. And this changed the game for Jackson State for what they're trying to do for Deion Sanders, the, the amount of, of notoriety that Jackson State is going to get this week and all the different think pieces about it, mm-hmm. it's gonna be all over the place. But I still just don't necessarily think that what Travis Hunter did suddenly opened the floodgates for copycat stunners like the one that Dion pulled off. Right. Good if we move on to some SEC takeaways from this because I realized that was a whole lot of non-SEC talk. Facts, no, let's get it. <laughs> It feels very fitting that A&M, Bama, and Georgia are all fighting for that number one spot. Um, it, it, depending on where, when you kind of looked at it on Wednesday, the A&M was, was at number one the last I had checked. Best class Jimbo has had in terms of the rankings. That's sort of what you would hope for coming off year four. You get the new deal. He's got ranches. Ranches. We mustn't forget about the ranches. Numerous plural. ranches. Ultimate flex. I'm sure that Jimbo had that in his back pocket every time he spoke to one of these big-time recruits. It kind of feels like we've been trending in this direction for a bit where we'd see these three specific programs 
battling for that number one spot every single year. And there's no guarantee that it happens moving forward, but it feels like we're gonna see more stability at that than we've seen in the past. We've been watching kind of Saban and Kirby battle it out one, two, most, well, I don't wanna say every year, but I went back and I found the number three team nationally. And it's kind of been a little bit all over the place. 2017 was Georgia, 2018 was Texas. Bama actually, that was the weird year that they had number five class and it was their worst of the decade with Saban. And then 2019, Texas had it again, but Bama and Georgia were one, two. 2020, Clemson had that number three spot. Georgia, Bama, one, two. And then 2021 was LSU at that number three spot. So it feels like kind of now, we're and you know, we're always gonna see Ohio State, USC in the mix. Lincoln Riley is gonna continue to recruit really, really well at USC. Mm-hmm. But it kind of feels like Jimbo is at that spot where A&M should be expecting top three recruiting classes every single year mm-hmm. moving forward. And if it doesn't happen, you're kind of like, all right, well, hey, what's going on, man? Um, what, what, do, what do we need to do to make this happen? And Jimbo, being Jimbo, will probably have to come out and get another extension to try and will I just need more money. You don't understand. All of our problems could be solved if you just gave me more money. And the boosters are <laughs> like, yep, you got it, Jimbo. Here you go, man. Will that result in Jimbo raising the floor higher than the level that Kevin Sumlin had? Uh, TBD on that. We'll kind of wait and see. A lot of people were wondering about Brian Kelly's first class at LSU, and I try, we talked about this a lot, Will. We texted back and forth. I try to not overreact with these transition classes Mm -hmm. where these coaches have just a couple of weeks to kind of salvage whatever previous class was, try and get some new recruits in there. Not exactly... You're not exactly set up for success, though I still don't necessarily think that's the the reason that you should move back the early signing period because I don't tend to feel bad for coaches making like five to seven million bucks, right. whatever. But that's why I'm not really freaking out with the Billy Napier ranking. And I know we disagree on this. I thought the, uh, the Kamari Wilson commit was huge mm-hmm. because Dan Mullen, he signed a total of one kid from IMG. Yep. One. Billy Napier... Been on the job for two weeks, already mending that all-important relationship. It's still baffling to think that you could have a power like IMG in the state of Florida and Florida, the big in-state school, one kid from there. And it wasn't even a top 200 recruit. I mean, that's just baffling to think about. So that was key for Billy Napier. And Florida's got three top 100 signees and has a higher average recruiting ranking a recruit ranking rather than a handful of teams that are in the top 15 right now. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wouldn't necessarily worry about that overall class ranking, which is dead last in the SEC, even behind Vandy, as you talk about behind those Florida schools. Florida doesn't need volume, it needs talent. We agree on that, right? Like it's about top end talent that they weren't getting before. I'm gonna hold off judgment on Billy Napier on that. If we're having that conversation about a horrible ranking when you've got a full cycle or two full cycles, something like that, then we've got some major problems. Did you have any thoughts on that before we move on to Brian Kelly? Um, the only takeaway I'd have from that, and like I'm, I'm definitely not like poo-pooing the Kamari Wilson stuff. They had um, the lad Shamar as well that like committed, and and yeah. they did. You know, like the cool thing about Billy Napier and how he came to Florida is that he finished out his time at UL, and so I'm definitely not counting that against him. The thing that kind of blows my mind about this class from their standpoint, though, is they lost both Nick Evers and Jaden Gibson to Oklahoma who also had an incoming head coach that got the job after Billy Napier. <laughs> so, like, you know what I'm yeah. saying? I, I, To me, it's not about not getting... I feel like the guys who are looking at this as only, oh, eight days and they signed this five-star, they're not also looking at this huge wave of decommitments. And, like, I hate to be this guy, man, but as we've seen how easy it is to transfer, 
as a head coach, your move might just kind of be to lie. I, I, like, it sounds like a bad thing to say out loud, but that's kind of how Mullen got in trouble was by not being honest or by, 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 by being too honest with guys. And I, if with these kind of guys coming in, you had the whole fan base sold that they didn't need Corral, right? And then they ended up with Emory Jones. And then it was, well, Emory Jones is bad, but we got Nick Evers coming in. He's the new guy. And then it's just, let's turn on a dime. Nick Evers actually sucks. His family's toxic, all this different stuff. So I don't know. That was my only takeaway is losing those two guys was pretty bad. I do think that what they did with the time is good, but I will, I will disagree on one thing. Now we're, what, four Mullen recruiting classes, like three and some change. And I don't know what this Florida roster looks like, man. I'm going to be honest. Like, all the guys that were in there that we knew were pretty much kind of Mac recruits. And so I'm looking yeah. down this roster, and I'm like, you guys might need some bodies, especially with, like, Copeland coming out, Emory coming out. It's like, we well, got AR-15, who's had, like, health issues. So, like, I, the portal is going to be a big deal for them. I'm not, They'll be active there. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's, it's a red flag at all. I'm just, we're going to wait till after the portal, and it, they could do a Michigan State and get 12 guys. I'm like, oh, there's their team. We're done. That was the point I was going to bring up yeah. with Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker just, it, you want to talk about changing the game. Mm-hmm. I think Mel Tucker kind of changed the game for what we think is possible with roster turnover and having 41 new players this year. I mean, that's an incredible thing to think about. That's, that's half your scholarships right there, mm-hmm. just going to new players. And I, I don't necessarily think that Florida's going to be quite that active, but at the same time, you can do so in ways that are different now than what they were four years ago. And even within the SEC, now that that's not holding you back and that, oh, you, you can't transfer within the conference and you know play immediately. So that's going to be working in Billy Napier's favor as well. Talent evaluation is big for these first-year coaches. Big with Brian Kelly as well. He had an outside chance to sign the top four kids from the state of Louisiana. Shaz Preston, the stud receiver from Louisiana, he ultimately picks Bama. He's south of 200 pounds, so let's just do the Devontae Smith comparisons. <laughs> let's just do them all right now. Let's mm-hmm. get them out of the way. Slim Reaper, let's give, let's give them all the nicknames. Let's do it. Brian Kelly, though, he kept the two five-star kids, which was really the biggest win he could have asked for. Did not keep... Jake Johnson, the younger brother of Max Johnson, number one overall tight end in the class. That um, announcement kind of lost in the shuffle on Wednesday morning. He announced that he's going to AM, which makes a lot of sense. Jalen Weidermeyer expected to turn pro. Probably helped that Jimbo can be like, hey, this dude, Jalen Weidermeyer, uh, he started as a true freshman, three-star recruit, wasn't even the highest rated tight end mm-hmm. in our class, Baylor Cup was, and look what he became three years, he played from the jump, and he was a stud. So nice win for Jimbo there. I'd be surprised if Max Johnson didn't end up at AM at this point, would make a lot of sense. Might get cold taked on that one. Thank you to Miles Brennan for making his return to LSU announcement. Before, before we recorded, yes sir. We recorded. <laughs> that will be noted when I do my preseason quarterback rankings. Thank you, Miles Brennan. You will always get the benefit of the doubt on this here podcast. Mm-hmm. But the thing with, with Max Johnson, he hit the portal, basically the same exact announcement that we found out Jake Johnson was dropping his LSU commitment. Will, we were texting about this. As much as Haynes King intrigues me, I actually think this would make a lot of sense for Johnson from a skill set standpoint. And because the Aggies have major depth issues at quarterback with Zach Calzada now in the portal, what would your take be on, and again, we're recording this 145 on Wednesday, so we don't know if there's, knowing Max Johnson, he's going to announce this a half hour after we record, but what would be your take on watching Max Johnson at AM? I feel like given the way the recruiting has gone, they could probably do a little bit better. I mean, via the portal or, I mean, 
I don't understand if you're A&M why you don't even make a push for a guy like Dylan Gabriel. I, I'm like, I'm seriously like, no ill will to Max Johnson. I hope he does what he wants, or like, what, I hope he gets to a situation that works for him. Like you talked about with Haynes King, I mean, we were kind of promised that the whole reason that their season went off the rails was because Haynes King was so good, and Calzada was just such a big drop off from him. Um, I, I feel like considering, you know, they have this amazing quarterback coming in and they've really just been getting everyone they want. If you're starting Max Johnson next year with that talent, it feels a little weird because the issue with Max Johnson was, and he might be more mobile when he has a little bit of depth behind him, but he just wasn't really talented. He didn't really have an arm. He processed really slow. That's not really a name, even as an LSU fan, like, you know, the, the, the shoe game, we'll always have the shoe game, but Outside of that, it was never a guy that was really exciting. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we got, like, this guy coming in who has, like, a gun and maybe we could work with him. It's like, no, you pretty much kind of seen his – I mean, the peak of his career might be that A&M game or the Florida game. I don't know. Gosh. Ironic. Yeah, the yeah, Florida game feels very much like a peak. I actually think – I think Dylan John, uh, Dylan Gabriel, rather, would scheme-wise would be a really rough fit at A&M. With what Jimbo asks his quarterbacks to do in terms of processing and the quick decisions that Dylan Gabriel has had to make in that system at UCF, mm-hmm. I actually like as much as I, I really like Dylan Gabriel too, and I think at the right place he can be an absolute star at the Power Five level. But I actually kind of look at that situation I'm like, eh, I don't know that I would like that a whole lot. What intrigues me, Connor Weekman, the five star who's coming in. Yeah, Jimbo is heaping praise onto this kid. He's like, he's the best player in the country. That's why the Quinn Ewers thing didn't happen at AM apparently, was because of how much Jimbo likes this kid. Now, Connor Weekman doesn't spell his name correctly. We <laughs> One strike, other Connor. Two N's and an E is not the way to be. That's what I always say. But looks like a stud and looks really, really good. And it would not surprise me. I'm not saying that he's going to be QB1 from day one like a certain Bo Nix was. <laughs> but it would not surprise me if he got some run and he got a real chance to be a true freshman starter for Jimbo next year. Just, just gonna throw that one out there. That, no, that's exactly what I'm saying, man. I, I that's just the mile. The um, Max Johnson fits just so weird to me because it's like he'd have to beat out Hayes King or beat out Hayes King, who's like, you know, what I'm saying already kind of an incumbent starter more or less because he won that job. And then you have this other dude behind him who has like all these measurables and like all of his film is so nasty. It's like you're going to there's yeah. Max Johnson. It's like, what do I bring here? They need depth. Like, yeah, they need depth. But that's not why you transfer. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's not why you transfer to be depth guy. Because if you wanted to depth, be depth guy, he could have been depth guy at LSU, obviously. True. Very, very true. Other things to get to. The captain of the all-name team, new Tennessee receiver, Squirrel White, weighs 155 pounds. Yeah, that's right. Squirrel White. I'm already going nuts about him. Sorry. You're a terrorist. Had to. I'll just just walk out. (laughs) You're a terrorist. And the podcast right there. I was blown away that he existed, number one. I started to look him up, and you just blindsided me with that. Wow. Can't wait to watch Squirrel run around. Um, <laughs> Eli Drinkwitz holding on to Luther Burden. Probably the most underrated non Deion Sanders feat of the day. Number three overall recruit, number one receiver in the class, had committed to Mizzou six weeks ago, just days after he visited Georgia. And he's staying relatively local, East St. Louis kid. Second highest rated recruit for Mizzou ever. Doriel Green Beckham. He is the first. Mm-hmm. Those comps are going to be there. He was the number one overall recruit back in 2012. Those comps are going to be out in full force. Though physically, they're they're very, very different. Green Beckham was kind of a physical freak, kind of like 6'4", 220 when he, when he shows up on campus and ends up getting up to like 235, 240, whatever he was. But anyways, huge, huge addition for Eli Drinkwitz. Mizzou 
signing a top 15 class is darn yep. impressive. You know what else is darn impressive? Kentucky also signing a top 15 class. Like as of late afternoon, like Wednesday afternoon, Kentucky was number 11 nationally, number four in the SEC. That is crazy. Behind those three aforementioned teams, mm -hmm. Georgia, Bama, A&M, then Kentucky. Like what, what world are we living in where that's a real thing that we're processing? We're living in Mark Stoops' world. The Kianta Goodwin news was the big one of the day that they had to wait on. And if you follow this story, it was all over the place. Ari Wasserman at The Athletic had a fantastic kind of run through following him around all day. And it was just so bizarre to watch that develop. Five-star kid who has been committed to Kentucky since April, but then went on an official visit, visit to Michigan State this past weekend. So he flies from Louisville to Dallas, is up on stage and says, he's not signing today and that he doesn't know when he'll sign, just that Michigan State and Kentucky are his finalists. Then he changes course. He's like, oh, I'm gonna announce at 3.30. Then it goes from 3.30 to five o'clock. <laughs> and he finally announces that he's going to Kentucky. So assume he hasn't signed at, as of this point yet. So we'll kind of wait and see. Hopefully that's not like a Jordan Birch situation where they gotta hunt that down. It's this weird back and forth thing. Hopefully not for the sake of Kentucky fans and for Vince Morrow after what he went through on Wednesday. Did not seem like a whole lot of fun. But assuming that sign seal delivered, first ever five-star recruit for Mark Stoops. That is why you offer a kid a scholarship when he's 13. That's what Goodwin got. Imagine having a scholarship offer when you're 13 from this program and still kind of waffling going back and forth at the very last minute, a program that you've been committed to for eight months now and you're still trying to figure out if they're the one for you. Um, anyways, but yeah, that's why you offer those 13 year old kids scholarships. Assume that they're just gonna turn into diesel human beings <laughs> like Goodwin did. If you've seen the before and after pictures, man, dude is, uh, he's a monster. He's, he's ready to go. <laughs> no strength program needed for him to be able to play day one, though he's obviously going to improve with that. Um, Kentucky's rolling right now, mm -hmm. absolutely rolling. And they really took advantage of those NIL opportunities for their players this past year, the players that they have actively on the roster. And I know that is going to continue to be a selling point for them in recruiting and with the transfer portal. Um, also really nice kind of under the radar pickup. They got Tavion Robinson, the Virginia Tech leading receiver. Would not be surprised if he replaced another Robinson at Kentucky, Wandell Robinson, because Tavion plays mostly in the slot. So would make a lot of sense if that was the move there. I love college football. Anything else? Just copy paste. <laughs> Transfer, slot receiver, Robinson, Kentucky, done. <laughs> Boom, perfect. Power five trans, yes, that checks all the boxes. That's all you really need. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to hit on for uh, early signing period? Yeah, we've talked about before with Mark Stoops that he is just in the dream situation for him. I truly hope he stays there forever. You talked about offering this guy way back in the day. And I mean, how many coaches can still say, you know, that they're at the program that they were when he was 13? So that's got to be a huge part of it. And then on the other side of it, you know, you're Kentucky. You're obviously, you know, huge basketball program used to just getting these five stars every single year with Calipari. And you finally got your one five star in football that you probably covet more than any of those guys. Because I hate to say it, but they're a dime a dozen at Kentucky, the, the five star basketball guys. And it's like, uh, 
don't really feel like it. It's like, no, we're, we're recruiting Patrick Starr. This is terrible. Please pick a time. Like, even if you don't pick us, just let me know. And like, it, that's just such a roller coaster ride. But pump for pump for Stoops, pump for that whole fan base. And, you know, of course, it's a, it's a big, thick boy for them that's going to fit right in. So like I said, I just... He's been so smart to stay at that job. Looks like they're really building something special. You know, um, their DC is staying. Obviously, another guy turning down LSU. Wow. But uh, Stoops has just built this consistency, man. And they're just trending up. And even if they have, you know, a bad year here or there, you got to just... They, Kentucky fans have to be the happiest fans in the SEC. And it seems like they get just they're up there. a little bit happier every year, you know? By the way, update. Goodwin is indeed signed. So we're not going to have... Social media told me that that he is signed. So, Kentucky fans, fear not. You're in the clear. Um, I guess you're never truly in the clear in this era of the transfer portal, but at least for now, temporarily, you are in the clear. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the portal, Spencer Rattler (laughs) goes to South Carolina. Um, Here I was thinking that the big transfer news in the SEC was going to be Tank Bigsby leaving. Tank, turns out, out of the portal. Didn't like it. Took one foot in. Was like, nope, not for me. Water's a little bit too cold. I'm going I'm to just stay right here. Um, but the big stunning news, Spencer Rattler going to South Carolina. If you saw Shane Beamer's comments from some of the beat guys like Ben Portnoy um, on the early signing period recap press conference that he did, Beamer said how um, Austin Stogner's dad was talking to Beamer and basically told him, like, hey, Spencer Rattler might actually be interested in South Carolina. Beamer was like, wait, I thought he wanted to stay closer to home. <laughs> Turns out that wasn't really important to him. And Beamer, who was on that Oklahoma staff for Radler's first two years, he made the push, got it done, got both Radler and Stogner. So a little bit of a package deal for him. A few thoughts on this, because this had college football world buzzing on Monday night. Big, big news. One is that despite the questions about Rattler's character and the potential issues he could face against drop eight coverage if he doesn't fix them, this is going to be a net positive for South Carolina. Like pretty much any way that I look at it, I I can't see a way in this this truly blows up South Carolina and it torpedoes their season. It's a win getting more skill position talent there in Columbia, whether that's with recruiting or with the all-important transfer portal. For eight months. We won't have any questions about who South Carolina's quarterback is, which is a massive win for a program that had three different starting quarterbacks, including a grad assistant. Again, not a grad transfer, a grad assistant. Shout out Zabulia. Zabulia. South Carolina's quarterback stuff, historically, it is the SEC version of my Chicago Bears. (laughs) It's bad. It, it's real, real bad. And I didn't realize quite how bad it was until I saw some of these figures. But think about this. South Carolina joined the SEC in 1992. In that time, Will, answer this question. How many all-SEC quarterbacks have they had during that entire time, 1992? 92 all-SEC quarterbacks. I don't, they haven't had one that I remember. So it would have to be, I mean, because I, I don't even think Garcia... Got to all. I mean, what you say, like first, second, third team? Yeah, any of those. Uh, I'm gonna end just, of season. We're not talking preseason. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just go ahead and say zero. I I don't know. You are correct. Not a one. Even Vandy had Jay Cutler. All right, King. Everybody's had him. How many quarterbacks has South Carolina had drafted 
since they joined the SEC. Just drafted, not first round, just drafted since 1992. Do you know the answer to that? 92, again, I can physically see these quarterbacks and I can't see them on the NFL. I would say three. Zero. Zero. Okay. 1990 was the last time. It's the ninth rounder. Yeah, that's, that's almost impossible to do, to be that bad. And oh, by the way, Steve Spurrier was in town for a decade of that. And it's not like they lacked blue chip quarterback recruits. That was mostly a must champ thing. Technically Spurrier only signed two four-star quarterback recruits, Stephen Garcia, Connor Mitch. Brandon McElwain was signed after Spurrier had resigned, so we can't technically count that. Mm -hmm. And Jake Bentley, same sort of deal. Although Jake Bentley, I think was, it was later recruited. I think that was mostly a must champ thing, if I'm not mistaken. One of the greatest offensive minds in college football history could not pull off what Shane Beamer just did by landing a former five-star recruit who was the number one overall recruit projected four months ago. If you talk about making that next step as a program, you need NFL talent at the quarterback position in the year 2021, 2022, whatever this is. South Carolina now has that with Rattler. That right there tells you why this made sense for South Carolina. And for Beamer, having actually seen the way that Rattler acts on and off the field, he wouldn't do this if he thought it was going to blow up the locker room. If you're Beamer and you find out that information from Stogner's dad and then you don't pursue Spencer Rattler, you're making a giant mistake. Because potential issues aside, that's a risk you have to take given the upside and given how difficult it has been to get NFL quarterback talent in your program. Beamer was smart to recognize the opportunity and to take a chance on Rattler after he's been humbled for Spencer Rattler. The question that probably more people were asking than anything else is why did Spencer Rattler go to South Carolina? I've been saying all week, the odds of this happening back in August, <laughs> I don't know, like 100,000 to one? <laughs> yep. And they would have only been in existence because of the Beamer connection right there. Right. It would have been the type of thing that gets thrown out there and you're just like, all right, let's close your eyes and picture Spencer Rattler at South Carolina. Come on, dream on. One, Spencer Radler clearly likes and trusts Shane Beamer. And I think we were talking about this before. I think people just like Shane Beamer. And that's a very simple thing, a simple observation, because it's not like people go to Shane Beamer and think he's some incredible schematic mind or anything like that. I think people like showing up to practice and playing for Shane Beamer. Mm -hmm. That's what everything has continued to tell us. And I think that's why his team got better down the stretch and why he has had such a positive response to going six and six, despite some of the issues that they had in year one. It's a rare place, South Carolina is. It's a rare place in the SEC where Rather knows he can be QB one from the jump. And unlike at a place like LSU, Florida, Auburn, there aren't these moving pieces with the offensive staff. I think that's part of it too. You get to play in the more favorable SEC division. You also get to be the man for the next eight months at the very least before you start a game. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not his focus because he was criticized for being a little bit too NIL focused last year at Oklahoma. And for all I know, he's gonna ignore all of those opportunities in Columbia and just put it all his time and energy into getting back to the guy who was one of the best three quarterbacks in college football the last two months of that 2020 season. But that is kind of one of the unique things about this. And I was talking about this with Mark Ryan of ESPN Upstate. I don't know how much this factored into it when Radler kind of sat down, made his pros and cons list. Like when he's sitting there figuring out what's the best move for my future, 
but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Because while it wouldn't have been anywhere near, oh, hey, you're gonna be number one overall pick, Spencer Radler could have gotten drafted. I firmly believe that. I think somebody would have been willing to take a, at least a late round flyer on the guy. And he might've been like, well, NIL, I might actually earn more money going to South Carolina and getting reps than I would going to the NFL. And at a place that has been so starved for quarterbacks, where his presence will truly mean something, those opportunities will be there if he wants them to be. If he stays in the Big 12, you've kind of got this Big 12 stigma as well. Mm -hmm. And I think he's trying to shed that a little bit. He couldn't return to his home state of Arizona because Arizona State has Jaden Daniels coming back. And Arizona is, a Arizona is just a dumpster fire of a program right now. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to sign up to play for that. You're also not going to USC to reunite with the guy who benched you, probably. Mm -hmm. Can I guess that? And Nebraska would have been interesting with Mark Whipple running that offense after the year that he had in the ear of a certain Kenny Pickett, but kind of a season on the brink sort of vibe there. That's probably not exactly the most favorable place after the year that Rattler just had dealing with some of those expectations, dealing with that pressure. So yeah, go to South Carolina. If you're Rattler and you believe that you are misunderstood, go play for a coach who understands you and you understand him. Great move for both parties. Will, I'm gonna say this for everyone, all off season. The QB talent in the SEC next year mm -hmm. looks darn good. Our guy, Hendon Hooker, mm -hmm. coming back. Shout out to Hendog Nation. We know you're out there. Hendog supporters, we are. KJ Jefferson expected to be back. Will Levis expected to be back. You know Bryce Young, Will Rogers, they're coming back. We could be talking about I don't know, like maybe half of the SEC's fan base is thinking that way they have one of the top 10 quarterbacks in all of college football, and they might have a point. Mm -hmm. That's the crazy thing. Will, here's a question for you. Does Spencer Radler enter 2022 with one of those three all-SEC quarterback spots? Enter, so not, not preseason, but like at the end of the year. No, preseason. Let's just talk preseason. Here. Okay. Let's talk preseason. So going into going into the 2022 season, where we're trying to figure out there's three all-SEC teams, mm -hmm. three quarterbacks will ultimately yeah. get one of those spots. Bryce Young has taken up one of those spots unless he gets hurt. And even if he gets hurt, as we saw with George Pickens, you know, I guess he could just do that. Will Rogers probably going to get another one of those spots. And then I think where it gets interesting, Radler, Hooker, KJ, back and forth, all over the place. Those three guys, or I guess you could include Rodgers as well. Who would you pick as kind of like, you know, your your hierarchy going into the season? Oh, I mean, me personally, I'm riding with Will Rodgers all the way. Um, and I would say this, given how we've seen SEC voters vote, you know, it's a little bit of that stubbornness you just talked about. Um, and I think I think the injury, uh, the injury situation you were just talking about is a great example of that. I think that they kind of have this take on him that he's a little bit spoiled and overhyped. So without playing it down, I think a lot of writers would go with the, oh, he couldn't make it in the SEC, da 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 type of thing. I would think, and especially because he was one of the few guys coming into the season that got hype. And dude, hype coming into this season was a kiss of death. So I think oh. I think he would have. I think he's gonna have to earn it. It wouldn't shock me if he was there at the end of the year, but the beginning, I think the SEC voters are a little bit too too proud for that. South Carolina fans, you should hope that Spencer Rattler doesn't get that. Just 
have as little buzz nationally about him as possible. That's not going to happen because right. that's what we do with the transfer quarterbacks. We overreact to them. I know some people are probably listening to this saying, how can you say that about Spencer Rattler when he was benched at Oklahoma? And I know I've been critical. Look, like mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've been saying all year, look, I think, he's, I think he's overhyped. I don't think he's nearly as good as the Oklahoma quarterbacks before him. But dude has a 40 to 12 TD to INT ratio. Big 12 championship MVP back in 2020. Mm-hmm. He's got a career quarterback rating of 166. He's a good quarterback. Yeah. He's a good quarterback. He's got his issues. He's got his issues to figure out. And ironically enough, if he had actually stayed at Oklahoma and worked with Jeff Levy, the guy who helped Matt Corral against drop eight coverage, yep. it would have kind of made a lot of sense if he had decided to do the Miles Brennan thing. But he decides, South Carolina, new start. Let's go there. I'm excited for Gamecock fans. Been a minute since they've had a quarterback worth getting excited about. They have their QB1. Feel bad that Jason Brown immediately had to enter the transfer portal. Um, Somebody who played a big part in getting them to a bowl game, and we'd love to have Jason on here as well. Hope that he is able to have some success. But for South Carolina, huge, huge move that was early in the week. Real quick, I just I wish you could have seen the wormhole they just went through on Google while you were talking about the South Carolina quarterbacks because you could literally sit there and name... Eight pass catchers. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, Sidney Rice, Jared Cook, Alshon Jeffrey. Like, I was like, thinking, Farrell Cooper. And I kept thinking, like, who's that guy's quarter? Oh, who's, no, no, how about, like, I was just, Debo. <laughs> right. Yeah, Debo was the other one. It's like, how, how no, there's got to be one. And I just kept looking, and there just wasn't one. And that's what's crazy about South Carolina. They're like this sneaky pro talent factory. They have all these usual, you know, Melvin Ingram, Clowney's not sneaky, you know, but there's there's enough guys in South Carolina that you look around consistently, and you're like, what, Mike Davis? They have all these guys that you're just like, wow, I remember him. He was really nasty, like, whatever. And I guess, yeah, I guess part of why you don't really remember them as much in college is because they've had, like, just some dudes playing quarterback. So good for them, man. Seriously, seriously good for them because that's a program that a quarterback or two could have totally changed the history of this program, especially during, you know, the the, the late Spurrier years and maybe the Muschamp years. Yeah. If it's between, like, Tannehill and Shaw, and Tannehill got a rough deal on the All-SEC thing back in 95, Peyton Manning, Danny Werfel, Right. Those guys were going to kind of win that battle. He had the numbers to actually win if you kind of look at it historically speaking. But, yeah, I mean, it's probably not the best. With all due respect to Connor Shaw, who spells his name correctly, <laughs> he had a cup of coffee in the NFL. And other than that, it's really so limited at the all-time great South Carolina quarterbacks. And it's sadly, like, Muschamp was definitely a part of that, no doubt about it, because he brought in all this four-star talent and couldn't do anything with it. Right. But at the same time, it is still more of a historic thing than just a Muschamp. All right, speaking of Peyton Manning, <laughs> let's kick it to Philip Fulmer. A little peel behind the onion here. So with the way that we interview people on this podcast in the system that we use, sometimes we'll call them or they'll call us. It's kind of nice because some people don't like giving out their phone numbers and they can instead just call in. So when I know somebody is calling me and calling into the system, I'll try and get in there about like 10 minutes early just in case people call early, you know, just never know. And in my, this is my fifth season doing this with, especially with our system. I don't think I've any ever had anyone call in earlier than like three or four minutes. And when that happens, I'm like really, really surprised. So the interview with Fulmer, it was 1 p.m. and Fulmer calls at 12:53, seven minutes early. Mm-hmm. And I always ask someone how much time they have to talk because I want to be respectful and not make them feel awkward if they need to split or something like that. Fulmer tells me he's got about 50 minutes. And then goes, that's longer than you'll want to t- want to go, I'm sure. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, 
man, I'd go all day with you if you let me. But anyway, we did get into a million different things and I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. So here is the legend, Philip Fulmer. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first time guest. It is former Tennessee coach, Philip Fulmer, who is joining us on behalf of Athlete Licensing Company. Let's start right there. ALC is an organization that exists in the NIL era to help college athletes with brand management, compliance support, and the whole deal. Uh, you're working with ALC now as a founding advisory board member and a seed capital investor. I got to imagine that you couldn't have predicted a role like this for yourself 10 years ago, but tell us what intrigued you about ALC and this new role that you've signed up for in the NIL era. Well, Connor, one, thank you for having, having me on and you're absolutely right. It's not something I would have ever seen myself doing and not even 10 years ago, three years ago, you know, it's just, everything has changed you know, so fast, a lot of it coming out of the Austin case uh, with the NCAA losing that lawsuit, obviously the federal government getting involved, you know, basically saying that the athletes deserve to be paid, you know, and um, there's been just been lots of changes. Uh, the Power Five is changing. Coaches are moving everywhere, you know, and, and NIL's here. It's, it's, it's whether you like it or not, you know, the Supreme Court said, you know, this is the law. And uh, it, it's all, it's all right. There's lots of deals being made out there with donors and collectives and groups associated with the university, some not associated with the university. And um, ALC is trying to bring some, some calmness to all of the, the chaos that's going on. Uh, it's a technology that uh, has the ability to to uh, track. It's got it's proven its wares in the music business, actually. And uh, as things change and chaos develop, there's an opportunity. So we we feel like that we have um, uh, the the right people in place and the and the software in place to really make a difference. And this is important. What I'm getting ready to say for the athlete. You know, obviously, we'll be involved with alumni and donors and universities and maybe conferences before it's all over with. But, you know, our goal is to make sure that the athlete is, is taken care of in this process. Uh, lots and lots of times there's they're the last ones that, that are that are thought about. And uh, we'd, we'd like to make sure that's not the case. What in the world would NIL have looked like in your era? Would you have been a major supporter of it? You know, I think anybody that kept up with us and how we tried to do things at UT, you know, the kind of the family way, uh, we, we, we didn't, we certainly didn't buy players or anything like that, but we tried to make sure that, that you know, whether it be Pell Grant or, you know, uh, you know, dollars that the NCAA provided or the schools provided, but through the NCAA, you know, in the last few years, particularly as an athletic director, uh, that that they got everything that that they could. It was hard sometimes, you know, seeing a a young person, and I'm saying person, male, female, you know, might be a track athlete or whatever, that would come through, and you know, they needed to get home, uh, you know, or or 
you know, they had a, an issue some way with, with the, you know, the rent or whatever, and you couldn't help it uh, unless you went through some some emergency fund or something. And this this allows them, uh, you know, to be helped. So to answer your question more directly, I'm glad I'm glad to see that uh, that it's uh, that it has moved this way. The, um, you know, is a great great place for athletes. As are, as are there many schools around the country that are great, great places, and uh, you know they have a chance to have a better experience. Bryce Young made seven figures before he ever started a game, and that headline when that hit, and everybody's at SEC media days. All of a sudden, reality kind of sunk in. Of whoa, this is this is real. This is real money. This isn't necessarily just a few hundred bucks here and there. And I know it is for a lot of these student athletes. But at the same time, there is no doubt that the big stars in the sport are going to benefit in great ways from NIL. There's no doubt that Peyton Manning would have been one of the richest NIL athletes ever. In hindsight, do you wish you could have seen him cash in on those opportunities? Or did it sort of work out for you in the best possible way because that distraction wasn't necessarily there for him? Well, it's a different time, different era. Um, Peyton was certainly would have been one that would have made, as you said, made major money. I had a lot of good players, you know, that had come to Tennessee, and and uh, you know, I would certainly have enjoyed seeing them benefit from from something like this. But the rules were different. And 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 you know we we prided ourselves in in our young people growing from you know adolescence to manhood and learning how to earn a living and do all those things. Fortunately, a lot of them got had a chance to play you know professionally, but most of them didn't. And you know you're preparing them educationally. Uh, you know I'm like you, and like you said, everybody was hit between the eyes with a, with a brush on thing, and. That's not going to be everybody. I think everyone knows that. Uh, right. There's, there's, there's going to be a few of those guys, but it's, it's really what happens to for, for the rest of the kids on on campus, not just athlete football. I mean, not just football, but or basketball. But what happens on campus for the rest of the athletes? That's going to be the biggest plus that comes out of this. You know, I think and. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of deals going on, access to, to athletes, exclusive access, video shoots, you know, all the memorabilia. You can imagine what Peyton would have earned, you know, with the memorabilia, T-shirts, hats, jerseys, and all those things. And the NFT thing is is for sure out there. And there has to be some order to this and, and, and all the chaos. And I think we have a chance uh, to, to do that, the uh, – now, the software comes from the music industry, uh, and it it is proven over years and years and years now that it that it works. That um, everybody, if, if 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 a record is played on a radio station in Minneapolis by Kenny Chesney, Kenny's going to get his pennies, and so is the the writer and, and, and so is the producer and so is the band members and so on. And so is the IRS. And so, you know, people don't think about that or if there's any in, in, in athletics, if there's any compliance issues, you've got to have track, track the money. And that's what, it's what ALC does. Now it can go, 
further than that from a branding, marketing, merchandising standpoint. But the heart and soul of it that made me interested in it is there's a proven software already that that uh, can help schools and athletes, uh, you know, donors, alumni, agents, whatever, whoever they are, you know, track where the money goes, and and the athlete doesn't lose in that process. My colleague Matt Hayes, he just did a tremendous rewind podcast on on Peyton Manning for Saturday Lives Forever, and one of the things that he looked so closely at was Peyton's his announcement coming back for his final season. And in the pre-social media era, where things weren't necessarily leaked in the same sort of way, it just kind of had a different sort of buzz. Looking back on it, what do you personally remember from that day? <laughs> it was one of the greatest days of my life. I can tell you that. And uh, Peyton kept it close to the vets. He and his family, uh, you know, did their work and research. And and uh, uh, he did tell me before he went on stage and made me promise that I wasn't going to go out there with a big, huge smile on my face and, you know, and give it a butt. You know, he wanted that moment, and it was fantastic. And uh, it was really really hard not to, you know, uh, but it turned out great for him, great for us. And, uh, uh, you know, the proof's kind of in the pudding with his career as to, you know, what he meant to the University of Tennessee and college football. So when he tells you that, tell me when exactly that happened, because there are very few moments in life in which you have to hold back emotion and you're in front of a camera, you're in front of a group of people or something like that. And to have to hold back that smile, I imagine had to be so difficult for you. So when exactly did you find out that this was, I, this was going to be the news you could have hoped for? Not the night before Connor, I was giddy. I mean, I was absolutely <laughs> prepared for him to leave and, you know, in some senses, it made it made sense for him to not risk injury and and those kinds of things. So you know, you get a you get an announcement like that uh, that from the best player in college football that you're having a chance to coach and we just won the championship, the SEC championship, and um, had a chance to go do it again. You know, so yeah, I'm I was giddy, but I di- I did my I did a great job of not showing it prior to him making his announcement. Did you sleep at all that night? I slept better. (laughs) 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 I mean, I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily blame you for that. And I think that as we look back on Peyton's career, there are these, these defining moments. And then one of those, of course, being, the Heisman Trophy, which I know you've talked about that ad nauseum, and I don't need to get your take on whether or not you think he should have won. I know the answer to that question and the answer that everybody has in the state of Tennessee, but I want to know, have you ever gotten to speak to a Heisman voter who voted for Charles Woodson instead of Peyton Manning? And if so, how did that conversation go? <laughs> well, I'm going to disappoint you. No, I have, I have not brought even brought it up, you know. Uh, out outside of uh, of our Tennessee family, really, uh, not to challenge anybody or whatever. I I did think Peyton deserved 
the, the, the trophy, and you can't take anything away from from Woodson. Uh, but you know, there are just a lot of dynamics there at that particular time, with um, you know the Florida quarterback having won it the year before, and you know CBS being our 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 main channel that we or main network that we worked with, and. ESPN and ABC not, you know, being there, you know, they they cover us, but, you know, we're Big Ten. And there's just a lot of dynamics there. So um, you're going to get me fired up here if we keep on this. Because <laughs> 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 that, that was an absolute shame. Well, you know, and not to, not to keep beating a dead horse here, but we've seen the way that this has been talked about in the past, and it seems – a bit unfair for those who watch Peyton's career that he didn't necessarily be he didn't necessarily get the chance to add that to his name. And back then, when the Heisman let's let's call it what it is that the Heisman was a lifetime achievement award pre underclassmen winning winning the Heisman Tebow two thousand seven. And so when you hear that announcement, like everybody goes back to Peyton and his face, and you can kind of see that sunken feeling in his face when that announcement comes out. But your reaction that night, I got to imagine, was was one like how, talk about. I mean, you just talked about trying to hide your emotions when Peyton announced he's coming back. How difficult was that to hide your emotions and not just want to lash out at everybody? It was really difficult. I mean, it was it was. I mean, there was great players, uh, uh, you know, there. So I mean, you you every one of them could have had an argument as to why they, you know, they, they maybe deserved that, which included. And, and, uh, I mean, you don't, you don't, you know, you just socially, you don't do that. You, 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 he, his family were so gracious and that, you know, we were, and, you know, the first thing you think of what could we have done different, you know, and what, what more could have possibly he done or we 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 did as a university and you, then you get comfortable we did all we could do and you, you know you you live with it Peyton's never brought it up i've never brought it up uh, to, to to him or his family again i think it was the heisman's loss personally you know particularly with this career that he's that he's going on and had and and in sports and out of sports so, yeah, and then it doesn't change anything in the Tennessee people's mind, I can assure you, and probably most of the people in the country. Peyton was the best player in the country that year. Let's spin into today because everyone well, is talking about friend, Arch Manning. My good friend Lloyd Carr would argue that. <laughs> so, <laughs> there we go. Um, within the Manning family, of course, everybody now is all over the, the Arch Manning recruitment. Um, Darren Ravel estimated that he'd earn eight figures worth of endorsements with NIL. Now that you're kind of in the space and you're, you're kind of seeing some of the back end stuff of it, do you have a, a thought of what Arch Manning could be in line for when he comes to college? Yeah, I, I'm, my, our group is kind of on the other side of that, you know, where we're trying to help them manage, you know, their their um, uh, the tracking the, the, with the software, tracking, you know, wh- where their money goes. I don't know. I mean, Arch, Arch Manning's, I mean, if, it, it's, it, it's tremendous. I don't know. I don't know whether his family would even let him get involved with that at this point in his career or, before he goes to college or if at all, but, 
he certainly has has a huge, huge, huge opportunity in front of him. You have great perspective on this, obviously, as someone who played, who coached, who worked in administration, and now uh, being in this role that you're in with NIL. How would you advise someone like someone like Arch Manning, or it doesn't necessarily have to be him, like thinking back, advising one of your top players of how to deal with this? Because as you mentioned before, I mean, there's just so many different businesses that can come at you and all this stuff that you got to navigate with compliance. So what would be the biggest piece of advice that you'd give some of these guys who are just going through this for the first time? Well, I can tell you kind of what our mission is, and it, and it, it would go along with what you're saying, I, I think, is, you know, you build an advising group around you, uh, you know, whether it be, um, you know, media or, or uh, social media or, uh, you know, certainly if you're looking for NFTs or branding opportunities or marketing opportunities, there's lots of things a young person has to think about and get help, you know, get, get help from, you know, parents if they're capable or an advisor if they're capable or somebody like us, uh, uh, because we're going to keep the athletes. I think I said this earlier at the center of reporting and compliance and the universities are going to appreciate it very much. We, uh, I guess you've probably followed, you know, some of the stuff that's already happening, uh, at um, at, a, at a few schools, you know, and that's that's just that's just poor reporting and, and tracking, and hopefully we can prevent that with anybody that we work with. So you retired as Tennessee's athletic director earlier in the year. I'm sure you kept busy. You got eight grandkids, one on the way. You've got four kids of your own. But what's that relationship like with Tennessee now? Like, are, are you sitting on a Saturday with grandkids running around and you're and you're turned into the Vols? Like, what exactly um, is that relationship like with the university? Well, I, it's it's really good. I mean, I I, uh, I retired. It took me a couple of months to adjust, just to not being, you know, going 100 miles an hour as we were, and then all of a sudden you're going zero. You know. Uh, as far as working uh, every day, and uh, but I have made a good transition because mostly my children and grandchildren, my wife, you know, everybody's been, you know, really supportive, and I've been very, I've always been active with my children and grandchildren since I left coaching in, in '08, and uh, so I can do that more. Uh, I, I, I saw this as an opportunity. And, and and particularly uh, an opportunity to help uh, help young people, kids, you know, with with their uh, opportunities, monitoring and 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 you know, keeping them, uh, you know, hopefully away from the, you know, some bad guys in the industry, you know, that that are out there from time to time, and you know, we can be a back office accounting, you know, and compliance that every every university in the country. Um, you know, can use uh, if if they if they choose to, or we can work with uh, you know their whoever their people are. You know, so lots of stakeholders here, and and what I've seen myself doing this, um, like you said earlier, five years ago, probably not, but I see this is a really really great opportunity to help uh, a profession and and uh, that I care about and kids, you know, all over the country, young people. 
Are you still watching a good amount of college football on a given Saturday? I do. Yeah, I didn't answer your question about UT. Yeah, we've got a great relationship with UT, and uh, you know the president, the chancellor, and the athletic director, and the coach. And like this, I was at practice this morning. You know, went over and and uh, watched them in preparation for the Music City Bowl for just just a bit. Saw a lot of a lot of my you know friends and things. So uh, yeah, I'm 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 I feel great about my time there, uh, and. Um, you know, they, I think they do too. So. What do you think of uh, the job that, that Josh Heupel has done so far? Well, I think he's done a really good job. Uh, you look at, you know, we're real, one score away from beating, uh, beating uh, uh, Ole Miss. And we had a, every chance in the world early in the game to, to win the Pittsburgh game. That would have been nine, seven, seven from where he, what he inherited with all the kids that transferred. And left is a really good, good uh, number. And uh, he was left. The cur- cupboard was pretty bare. <laughs> so I think he, he and his staff did a fantastic job in his support groups and trainers and everybody getting the guys out there. And uh, now it's just I think it's all onward and upward now as he puts his, his, uh, his trademark on. Yeah, and that, that's what I was curious about in year one because, you know, it's different now in this era of college football where you got to see that identity within a program right away. And if Josh Heupel is going to last at Tennessee, it's going to be because, hey, we saw his identity with his offense all over the program year one, year two, and then it just kind of takes off and gets going. You had a little bit of time to be able to kind of figure some things out, and obviously taking over at the time you did, where you know expectations are are still sky high. Do you think coaches kind of get the time of day that they deserve now, or would you like to see more of these programs be a little bit more patient with that? <laughs> well, obviously, I'd like to see them be more patient, but it's 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 like NIL. That it's the social media and the pressures and the money. that's out there now that's that's just not going to happen you know and i think it's showing up in the coaches moving around and and uh, you know in all sorts of ways so people are people are in a hurry i mean i was listening to a sports show on the way back to to do this call everybody's in a hurry everybody's you know uh wants everything to be perfect you know right now and that's not always going to happen obviously I'm glad I coached in the era that I coached. I can tell you. I mean, but those buyouts—they're—they're they're crazy. And look, like we've got coaches now; these fully guaranteed deals, ten years, seventy-five to a hundred million dollars. I mean, when you see that, and James Franklin and Jimbo Fisher, Mel Tucker—these these guys were just getting these. And oh, by the way, Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly—these guys were getting monumental contracts. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, 2007, Nick Saban became the first $4 million man in the sport. And all of a sudden we've seen this take off. What are your thoughts just kind of on, on that dynamic right now and the way that this is all heading in college football? Better, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, things are changing fast in, in, in the athletics world. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it is, it is what it is. It's a reflection of society and, and, um, I, I I'm more power to them, you know. Uh, I'm at a place in my life. I'm just thrilled that I get to play with my grandchildren and watch them play sports, and you know, go to their plays like I did this morning, and 
Christmas play and those kinds of things. And the, the money, the, the money is is really kind of the root of the of the issues. You know that uh, you know there's not the patience maybe that there used to be in in, in those kinds of things. But it's a, there's a trade off there for sure. Anytime Tennessee has sniffed success in recent memory, we get the feels like 98 storyline all over again. That's that's inevitable. Can you explain to us now, being a couple decades removed from it, what 98 felt like then and then also what it feels like now when you hear people bring that up? Uh, yeah, Connor, I mean, it, that's that's a great question. And I, we could take the rest of the day talking about <laughs> This that team and, and and really that era, you know, it turned out to be the, you know, the best era in modern Tennessee football, and there were so many great players. We just uh, came back from Las Vegas here a couple of days ago, where we inducted uh, Al Wilson into the National Football Foundation Hall of Fame, and he's only one of many guys that were great players on on that team and in 98, but he was kind of the heart and soul of it because of his energy and his attitude. And, and I, you know, I brought him in early in his junior year in January of his junior year and said, Al, we're going to need your leadership, you know, with lost Peyton and 12 other guys to the NFL and a bunch of other guys that were really good players, you know, and uh, we put the pieces back together and they just weren't going to let T Martin fail. And, uh, they knew how to practice. They knew how to go to work every day uh, uh, to be the best that we had. We had a, a personality, you know, from from uh, uh, from a defensive standpoint. Had great defensive linemen and secondary and linebackers, and uh, then the offense caught up. And you know, the, the, we were as you have to be. You know, we were fortunate in, in a game or two early. Just Syracuse was a phenomenal team, you know, and. We kicked the field goal at the end to win that one, and obviously winning the uh, the um, Florida game was huge in overtime there early in the season. And then we then we got on the roll. It, you know the kids bleak in it. You know we, we we had a team of destiny. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly much or much about it back. Uh, couple weeks into the season we were at practice and, and I, my wife and I hiked quite a bit in the mountains or did and still do some and one, a friend of mine had a had a really beautiful walking stick carved by somebody there in the mountains and and um uh, it brought it out to me at practice and I, you know I we were get, getting ready for flex and he, you know he, the guy I thanked him and he, he left and I'm showing it to the players, you know, and uh, and uh, I said, guys, what do you think of this? Isn't this beautiful? And, then, you know, <laughs> they said, Coach, you look like Moses, <laughs> you know, with his walking. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Moses, you know, Moses is an old guy and gray and bent over, you know, and all that. So I gave it to a manager, and we went on about our business for practice. And I got to think about it that night. I said, Moses led the people to the promised land. There's an opportunity here. So the next day at team meeting, I had I took to all the chairs. You know how everybody likes to sit where they sit, you know, and they're accustomed to coming into the team room, and and they were all in rows and everything. Well, I had the, all all the chairs put in a circle, you know, so they they come in. Oh God, where's my seat? You know that I done. I said I want the seniors up front, juniors. 
sophomores and freshmen in the back, and I got in the middle of the circle and said, you guys had some fun with me yesterday calling me Moses and everything, but Moses led the people to the promised land. And this was two or three games into the season. We hadn't played great yet, you know, particularly offensively. And I said, I'm telling you guys right now that I'm going to lead you guys to the promised land if you'll pay attention and listen and work like we've been working and keep getting better. And I said, this stick is going to be our synergy stick. Uh, you can't tell anybody about this synergy stick. I'm going to give it to Al and that linebacker. Y'all take it today and, and give it to the offensive line, Mercedes, and those guys. Everybody has it, but you can't tell anybody, your parents, your girlfriend. You know, certainly not the media. You know, that stick was the first thing on the bus, first thing off the bus, first thing on the airplane at practice every day, first thing in the, and then all the way through the national championship game. That synergy stick was a bonding, a bonding moment for us. And, uh, I didn't tell anybody till after the game. I told some of the media people that, that, uh, that were there. And, but, you know, there's those moments that you have. And we had some in 97 as well, in a good season, or 01, which 01 might have been our best team, you know, that that you you put the pieces together to make something really special. And when people say that 98, it feels like 98, I think that's what they're saying. It feels really special. That's incredible. And you go back through the moments of that season, and we did a rewatch of the 98 Arkansas game, of course, the Clint Sterner fumble. You said afterwards, I am to the point where I believe that nothing is impossible with this group of Vols. It can be fairly said of them that they will find a way to win. I know I will never doubt them. So two-part question here. One is, I got to know where that stick was that game because obviously that sucker was present. There's no doubt about that. And then it's on the sideline and I actually I'm sitting here looking at it at my desk right now. I need to get so it over and give it give it to Josh, I guess. <laughs> you still have this have you kept the stick all this time, twenty three years? Oh, yeah. I did. I kept it. I sure did. Unbelievable. Wow, wow. All right. So be honest though, that moment that just kinda lets you know, all right. Cosmic forces are working in our favor. If there was ever a time in which the team of destiny vibes were evident, it was watching that happen because, you know, with all due respect, it wasn't necessarily a spot that you force where you have a guy trip over his center's foot and all that stuff. But what was that moment of doubt like before that play happened for you? Well, I mean, I was like everybody else when, you know, T's coming off the field and, Unbuckles his chin strap and looks like he's reaching under his shoulder pads to to uh, unbuckle his shoulder pads. And I'm standing right next to Billy Ratliff, and Billy says, "Hey, T, keep your helmet on. We're going to get the ball back." You know, and um, T buckles back up, and they go out there. And everybody says, you know, that Stoner tripped on the guard, like, like it sounded like the guard did something wrong. Billy Ratcliffe knocked the guard back into the quarterback. He's uh, he a all-American all guard. And, uh, and then he tripped and stumbled and fumbled, and, you know, we got the ball. And we still had to take it 66 yards, you know, to, to win the game. But at that point, that team wasn't going to be denied. And, uh, you know, we ran we ran it every play. I was trying to get trying to time the darn thing. We left no time on the clock. Uh, we scored a little bit too soon, but uh, what you know that that 
if you didn't believe after that, you know, you weren't going to believe at all. So it was a special group of kids. What's a, an Al Wilson story that, that sticks out for you? Oh, Al, I mean, there's a thousand stories about Al. Al's a, a great leader vocally, but he's more of a leader uh, uh, by, by his actions. I've seen him run by somebody and make a tackle and never even pay attention to the person that he tackled. Big games. And he'd turn around and chew the ass out of the guy that he had passed. You know, why weren't you, why weren't you running as fast as I was? You know, um, or grab guys as he ran by them. You know, to to get them to go the speed that he's going. Um, we were in the SEC championship game, and Coach Brooks, our defensive line, great defensive line coach, who. Uh, had all these great players and went on to Clemson and won a couple national championships too. He was a defensive line coach, and we had enough good players that we rotated almost all, I mean, every three or four plays, you know. And uh, in the championship game against Mississippi State, they kind of had a drive going. Um, and uh, Al came with a sideline and grabbed Sean Ellis and you know, get your pants back in here. You know, just right there in front of Coach Brooks. And, then, you know, I said, Dan, Dan I'm not going to stop him from putting him in there. You, you're you not either. <laughs> so, uh, Sean buckles up and goes. And, you know, somehow we get him stopped to win. Gosh, I, I know there are so many Tennessee fans that are nostalgic for that time. And, you know, the – the, the getting over the, the hump for, for a program that, that saw exactly what that looked like in big spots before, that means that much more, to borrow a cliche phrase. But the game that, that I think is, is fascinating to look back on, another game that we did a rewatch pod on, was, um, was Spurrier's last game in the Swamp. And 2001, you guys played this atypical game that was rescheduled because of September 11th. And everybody's talking about Florida, getting to a national championship, all those things. And you go in there and you pull out a win that just had to mean so much to you, given what it took to get there and the drought in the swamp, all those different things. Did you know that day, was there any inclination you had at all that that would be Spurrier's last time in the swamp? Or was that kind of out of sight, out of mind for everyone? No, I had no inclination it would be his last game. I know that he was frustrated about some things, you know. Everybody thinks Steve and I are bitter enemies, and we're really good friends. And, and uh, you know, I kid him all the time about you're a good guy until somebody puts a microphone in front of you, you know, and you, you know, get a bit of a prick. But but um, <laughs> but we're good. We're actually good friends. And uh, we had some great battles, uh, some games we lost we should have won. Probably maybe one or two that we won. We should have, we might not have had the best team, maybe. Uh, but that one was special for me. Uh, we were an 18 point underdog, and uh, we hit, we had one loss. And uh, honestly, that was that may have been our best best team uh, while while I was at Tennessee. Um, and uh, we put it all together that night. Rushed the football extremely well, and. Uh, won the game and, and did, didn't take advantage of the 
of the championship game against the team that would the LSU team that we'd already beat during the regular season. So um, that was a tough that that was a great win for us and a tough next game for us. Uh, but I, I do I, I like that kid Steve that I ran him out of college football. But that's that's in. <laughs> Okay, if you didn't say that, I was going to. Uh, you need to always, forever, have that in your back pocket. Of look, Steve, you were you were great until you finally saw me in this atypical, you know, this atypical game in the swamp. But you you always kind of like would bite your tongue. I, I remember with with some of the things that you could say, like Spurrier would 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 say whatever was on his mind. If he could take a shot at someone, he would. And obviously, you know, can't spell citrus bowl without ut or you know all that stuff. But like, was there ever a time in which you really felt like you got him and you got the last laugh? Well, that was one of them for sure. Uh, you know, um, I, I, no, I mean we had some banter. I, I, I don't. That I guess being just my nature was not, or my my upbringing and training, and everything was not to get into you know into into those kind of conversations. He was kind of ahead of head of the time, you know, a little bit with his way his, his nature, I guess. Uh, I respect him so much, I really do, because what he what he did, he did change. Uh, he did change the Southeastern Conference. You know, he was a running team, play defense, win thirteen to seven. You know. And, uh, you know, he, he changed it. Uh, he forgets about the butt whipping I put on him when I was the interim coach, though, in, in, uh, in Knoxville. Uh, he, he, he doesn't want to count that one all the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> Last one before I let you go here, and this has been, this has been absolutely awesome. Um, let's, let's bring it back to the NIL era. Uh, it, it was huge for, for college sports. To, to get to that place. And you kind of look around, you see the money, and, and now a lot of people are, are speculating about, all right, then what's next? And could next be pay for play? And that's what everybody's gonna be talking about in the latter part of this decade, I think. And if we're on the precipice of that, then obviously the game is gonna be changed again. Do you have any, any kind of thoughts on that? Just what it would mean in general? Do you think we're heading in that direction? Just, just anything that, that you think we're, we're going to be looking at in a few years from now? Connor, I, I'm not sure anybody knows where we're actually headed right now. Uh, I just know that there's just tons and tons of, of chaos and and schools not being on the same page and NCAA's not on the same page. Um, courts are, uh, in different states aren't on the same page. That part has to change, I think, eventually, where everybody, you know, is 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 under the same, you know, the same rules and can do the same things. Does that lead to pay for play? This this is sort of pay for play, you know, honestly, uh, and 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 in some ways, uh, and the compliance of this, as I said earlier, is going to be huge, and the accountability of of, uh, of of where tracking the money, where does the money go? Who's making the money? Is the player at the center? And that's what ALC is about. It does have lots of back office services. You know, we can take it to to the marketing and branding and 
and you know, eventually anything anybody else can do. But nobody has the the back office services that we that we have, and I hope we I hope we um, all realize that uh, this this can't be the wild wild west. Everybody in the country needs to be, you know, governed and 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 uh, all the level playing field everywhere. Phil, really really appreciate the time. Looking forward to seeing everything that ALC does in this NIL era. Best of luck with everything you got going on, all the grandkids and, and everything that you're, that you're a part of these days. Thank you, Connor. Good talking to you. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates for us. You never know what you're gonna get. Figuring it out, Christmas travel. So Will, this is something that I think our generation has dealt with a bit more because of how common it is for careers to take us out of state. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, that it seems like our generation kind of gets away from our hometown a little bit more? I know there's probably numbers to show that as well. Yeah, that, that seems logical. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot few, especially like, I, so my high school is in Alabama. You can kind of see it on Facebook, kind of the diaspora of people as time goes on, kind of moving away. Yeah. And I, I want the record to show that I love seeing my family during the holidays. I, I truly look forward to it. My mom has a massive family. I don't know if I've said it on these airwaves. She is one of 12. She's a triplet. Big old Irish family. So when we go, um, when we go to her side for Christmas, everyone goes to my aunt's place, north side of Chicago. But and it's a great time and I love it. And I love getting to see everyone, especially living far away right now. You appreciate those moments. But living where we do in Orlando, it's tough because we try to switch off basically like every year going to Chicago to be with my family or going to Indianapolis to be with Lauren's family. And it's not like we can just knock them both out because it's in, in the same trip because it's nearly a four hour drive between them, you mm -hmm. get the time change. So it's not something where we really try and do both because we'd have to like run a car, the whole deal. This year I am attempting both. Right. Just me. Lauren's actually going to be with her family for about eight days, and then I'm going to um, fly into Chicago on Saturday, spending a few days with my mom, brother, sister-in-law, and then they're driving back down with um, to see her family in Muncie, so they're dropping me off in Indy, be with Lauren's family, whatever. It's a lot. I've been back to the Midwest for Christmas for, like, I, I've had to fly back for basically like the last 10 years, ever since I went out to Nebraska. Um, the last seven of those have been out of the Orlando airport, which as everyone knows, is probably the last place on earth that many people would like to be in December. It oh, is yes. simply the worst. You oh, got two gosh. kinds of people in the Orlando airport in December. You got people who are just anti-Christmas that are coming to Florida because they don't want to be part of it. And then you got everyone who is leaving Orlando to go be with their families, both stressed out groups of people. You get the tourists who are coming in who are super excited and they can't wait to get to Disney and they're so fired up and the adrenaline has got them going. And then you get the people that are leaving with the crying kids who can't fit that souvenir into their backpack and then they slow up security and it is the worst. Mm -hmm. Don't wish that upon anyone. What Lauren and I have talked about is at what point do we stop doing that? I don't wanna stop seeing my family. That's not what I'm saying by any stretch. But at what point do we say, hey, 
come spend Christmas with us. Maybe not like an every year thing, but at least to the point where it's not assumed that we need to fly back every single Christmas. Like, why can't we have Christmas at our house and have our own traditions? Mm -hmm. I asked this question at uh, my new regular poker game and I was told, yes, I got a new regular poker game. It's a lot of fun. Heck yeah. As fate would have it, I was seated right next to an FSU fan last night. That was <laughs> interesting, <laughs> needless to say. Um, but anyway, I, so I, I kind of you know asked this question in the group and I was told, once you get kids, you totally have the right to say, hey, we want the kids to wake up in their own beds on Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. So Will, before we get to the Facebook group responses, what's your take on that and kind of like this assumption that if you're, you're younger, you're a younger adult, you have to go back to be with your family, like where you grew up on Christmas? You know me, man. I just kind of live my life a day at a time. Uh, so me and Brittany have been dating for three years, and we have still yet to broker any kind of trade deal on how holidays work. Like everyone thinks oh. we're weird. Yeah, we're, everyone thinks we're weird for that. But we both kind of have the the houses growing up that like host people, and so we could probably figure it out and say we're doing this. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever. My issue is my mom's birthday is after Thanksgiving. But if she could pick one, she would rather have me home for Christmas. But I don't want to miss her birthday. So it's just kind of a whole thing. So point being. I am probably gonna just be going home forever. And I've told you this about my holidays, but like my mom is Cajun and she remarried. And so my stepdad's family is from Alabama and they don't like to cook with spice. They don't make, you know, they're great people, uh, <laughs> but their food is good. It's just not Cajun food. And so slowly over the years, my mom has just picked up cooking more and more and more of Christmas. Over the last two years, she has just started rebelling and just being gone <laughs> and letting them fend for themselves. So Christmas is always a very fun time at the, at the uh, Ogburn Sandlin household. Where's Brittany's family? Uh, Ocala, Florida. Oh, that's right. That's right. I knew that. So, yeah, you can't just be like, hey, we'll, we'll swoop down to Ocala and then we'll go to Alabama. Like, it, it's different if you have, uh, if you're, you're, like, you're, your spouse's parents live close enough to your parents mm -hmm. to where you don't really have to think about that. When I was a kid growing up, we used to drive to my mom's side of the family for part of the day on Christmas and be at that big get together at my aunt's house in Chicago. And then we would drive and be with my dad's side for essentially the night part. And it was so much driving and I would always take like three naps in the car that day. Um, but it's a lot, it's just a lot. And I always kind of wonder like, is Christmas the dynamic ever going to change? And what kind of forces that change? Is it just as simple as having kids? Cause it's not as simple as being, you know, a time zone away, thousand, you know, thousand miles away, and having to fly. Um, all right, so let's go to the Facebook group. We've got some good responses here. Let's start with what we got. I feel like we start with Michael Dark every time. Do we start with Michael Dark every time? Will Does he's definitely like the, one of the aces in the staff. He is. He is. He's always Johnny on the spot with these responses. Um, let's start with Jeff Jensen. Jeff says. Oh, and by the way, I asked these following questions. Do you fly or drive back to see your family? What age do you tell family to come to you instead of going to them? Mm -hmm. Do you ever fly on Christmas Day? And obviously any holiday travel horror stories, we always welcome on this here podcast. So let's start with this one from Jeff. Jeff says, working in retail makes it hard to travel during those holidays. So everyone always comes to our house with Christmas falling on a Friday last year and Saturday this year, we finally were able to travel somewhere else and the pressure of hosting has been relieved. I'm ready to enjoy Christmas with a bourbon in my hand and no stress on my mind. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to do it. That's a really good way to do it. Hosting Christmas, 
sounds so stressful. Mm -hmm. It really does. As I bring up that point of like, hey, maybe family should come to us. So my aunt Casey, um, she's she's uh, sing she's been single for a very long time. She's had this apartment in Chicago, and it's it's a great place. And you know, everybody kind of loves loves going there. And it's you know, as long as I can remember, that's what we've been doing on that side of the family. And this is the first year in which we're not hosting Christmas or like my mom's side of the family isn't hosting Christmas at her place. They're hosting at somebody else's who's got like this like massive house, North Shore suburbs of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it sounds stressful for my Aunt Casey to have to go through that every year, to have dozens of people in, in an apartment, you know, no less, not yeah. even like a house. The prep that goes into it just seems intense. And unlike anything, like Thanksgiving feels a little bit more intimate than Christmas does. Mm -hmm. is, is, am I right for thinking that? It depends on how serious your family takes cooking. Because Thanksgiving, in terms of cooking, is is definitely a bigger thing. There's a lot more True. of a chance something could go wrong for Thanksgiving. I think for Christmas, though, it's more of like I, I hate to say it, but it's like a it's like a you know it's like a it's like a give it ish test because you could really just not really put up decorations for Christmas. Like, hey, I'll come over, or it's be it's not a big deal. Like Thanksgiving, you can't mail yeah. that part of it in. There's there's more variance to Christmas for sure. And if you're hosting, do you have to get gifts for everybody who comes? Yeah. My aunt is always, Casey's always been awesome about that. She always gives out an adult gift and a kid gift. And it's just, it just seems like a lot. You can't really mail it in with the decorations. And we, we do it where we have, everybody brings, brings a dish at least. And mm -hmm. so it's not just, she's got to cook a million different things, but she does her fair share of cooking and decorating. And it, we got this letter when, announcing that she wasn't going to be hosting Christmas this year. <laughs> and you could sense the relief. So I totally get it. If you're if you've been in that spot before, that just seems like a ton of work. Just Wait, did she Christmas put out a year. she put out like a press release saying she wasn't hosting Christmas? <laughs> essentially, essentially, and and it had already been negotiated. It wasn't like, hey, I'm just not going to do this. Somebody steps up, right? Um, you, you know, there there was already talks that the meetings behind closed doors had already <laughs> happened. But it was the first that I had learned of this. It's kind of one of those shocking things because w when you've been going to the same place your entire life, it's like, whoa, new era for this, but. Yeah, the relief, you could definitely tell it was there. And it was time. I mean, there's no reason that somebody that has like that has an apartment, especially in the COVID era, should right. be hosting like dozens of people and it gets, you know, it can get crowded. It's a massive family. It's a very big family. It's hard to host something. Man, what a queen. I could imagine the relief of her just taking these letters to the mailbox telling everyone not to come over. Heck yeah, you right. did your part, man. Enjoy your Christmas. Exactly. Uh, all right, we'll go to this from Michael Dark. Michael says, we usually drive to Detroit to see my family for either Christmas or Thanksgiving, but this is the first year since 2009 that we aren't traveling because we're closing on our house right after Christmas. Congratulations Ooh. to you, Michael. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather fly, but I can't afford the fortune it would take to fly the five of us up there around the holidays. If you wait to the last minute to buy Christmas flights, I don't know, like if people are listening to this and they've never experienced the surge of Christmas flight prices, mm -hmm. buddy, let me tell you, it's awful. We have that conversation in September mm -hmm. and we're the people who book, we try and book flights in the sweet spot. Uh, we'll usually, even for a vacation, five, six weeks out, something like that, that's usually they say the best time to buy flights. But with Christmas, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. You book that several months in advance because those prices are ridiculous. And that's part of the thing too. If you have kids, how expensive that is to fly home. If you have like two kids, you're you're spending like probably, I mean, if you're spending two kids, spending money on flights for two kids, that flight is probably four to $500 a piece. 
you're looking at upwards of like two grand, even if you're staying with family. Yep. That is not an easy thing to do that I just think kind of gets taken for granted in this whole thing. No, I love that yeah. move to buy the flights early, actually. That's such a power move because if you have your flights locked in, every, like I hate to say it like this, but it's like other people have to kind of like bend to you because you're prepared. It's like, hey, here's my flight, buddy. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You guys can make whatever plan y'all want. This is booked. I can't change it. It's too late. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah dri driving home for Christmas would be a little bit of a different story. But yeah, the flying part of it, it's just a lot. And the airport is just pure, pure madness mm -hmm. during those times. Drew Page. Drew says, working in the medical field makes it incredibly hard to gauge if I'll even have time to travel to see family. If I'm traveling for the holidays, no flying, I'm already stressed out enough. Gosh, that would be really difficult to not know your schedule and to have to make last minute adjustments. If you've got, you know, mom or dad kind of, hey, Drew, you coming home for Christmas? You figure out your schedule yet? I don't know. <laughs> Drew, it's December 23rd. We gotta figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, we got, yeah. That's the other thing. I've never had a job like that where it's just like, hey, like, we're, we need you Tuesday, buddy. Like, oh, sorry, like, these hospitals are staying open. Like, that sucks. You know what sucks? And one of the things they don't tell you when you're going through journalism school is that when you get your job out of college at your small local community newspaper and you're working with all these people who have been there way longer than you, oh, and yeah. they get to pick all their vacation days first and you're just there on Christmas. Like first, I think the first two, yeah, first two years in this field, Lauren couldn't leave for Christmas. She was stuck working. Like, hey, some, if a fire breaks out, somebody you know, fries a turkey, sets their house on fire, that's got to make the news. Somebody's got to be there to be able to report on it. Mm -hmm. It's brutal. It is so brutal for young professionals, I think, in, in, that, in that way. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, I remember one time having to be like, hey, I've, I've got to go home two weeks early. This will be our Christmas because I've got to be there. Just can't afford to miss work. And that just sucks when your schedule doesn't necessarily allow it. So appreciate that time if you do get it. And if you are in a situation where you can take some of that extended time off, that is uh, not necessarily a given depending on what you do for a living. My only example of that is I had to come back to Florida to watch Dan Mullen at the St. Petersburg Bowl. Who could ever forget? Wasn't that this? That was the last, last second field goal too, yep. wasn't it? It sure was. And that was like literally like December, I was like 23rd or something, or maybe like 26th. Maybe it was right after. I was like, uh, what am I doing? <laughs> it was a great time. I'm not like, you know what I'm saying? It was a great, it's always great to go to a bowl game. I was just like, this is the strangest location I've ever been in. Christmas. Tropicana Field, right? Yep. That place is such a dump. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. It's terrible. Look, I could watch a baseball game pretty much anywhere. That's not right. People at Tampa, St. Pete, they deserve better than that. It's not even in Tampa. It's in St. Pete. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. That place sucks. Especially for, for football, I imagine. Gosh, what a terrible idea. Um, let's go. Of all the stadiums that are available in the state of Florida, why do they have to have it there? <laughs> Anyways, all right, moving on. He thought he was done. No, no. <laughs> Uh, Junior Petty John, it's a great name. He says, drive, they are in town, meaning his family, mm -hmm. um, 21, too drunk to drive. No, they are in twin, keep up. Traffic was bad one year. Okay. Um, that was like a haiku that he just gave us. <laughs> that right was an incredible answer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that be. Thank you for that, uh, Petty John. Thank you. That's good yeah, stuff. Good. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to Tyler Graziani. Tyler says, "Go back and forth between flying and driving from Atlanta to Pittsburgh." Woo! That's a drive, man. Dang. 
Um, also, never telling my family to come to me. I love them, but it's a lot easier to leave than to kick people out. <laughs> flying on Christmas Eve and December 26th, much worse than flying Christmas Day. Yes, 100%. The way that it kind of breaks down during the week is also part of that. And I'm assuming we're flying back December 26th, but we're not flying into MCO. We're flying into Sanford. So mm. It's a little bit different. We're flying out of the Indy airport. And the Indy airport is, in my opinion, the best airport in the country. Stress-free, got enough flights. Some of these smaller airports are great, but you can't always get a flight out of Birmingham or out of Lexington. Buddy, can you never get a flight out of Birmingham? Yeah, just go to Atlanta. Why are, you, why are you messing around with that? But great that there's like never anybody there. And that's always fun. I, I don't think I could fly back Christmas Day. That, that just kind of puts a damper on the whole day. And you know that thing you do where you're looking at your watch the entire day when you've got a flight yep. at like six? Yep. I hate that. It's just kind of, it's almost a waste of a day. Yep. And you, even, even when you wake up, the day of a flight and it's your last day somewhere. I, I don't really like that. I would avoid that at all costs. That's why it's so cheap. That's baked into the prices for sure. And it's also like you are the one guy with a flight. Usually you're like one or two. So it's like, hey, everybody get a picture. Will's got a flight. Hey, make sure you yeah. get the presents in. Hey, tell everyone Will's got a flight. And when you spend your whole day just apologizing to people like, yeah, so I was the only one who could buy. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's just so awkward too. And you just feel like you're, you're being short with people probably a little bit. Is there a sadder place to be on Christmas Day than the airport? Um, no. I mean, I'm sure there are a couple, but yeah, it's still pretty well, bad. Yeah, are there, okay, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Is there a sadder legal place to be on Christmas Day than the airport? Because if you go to, you know, you go out to a restaurant or something like that, and if you don't celebrate Christmas, and you know, maybe your Christmas tradition is going to a movie or something, all right, that's one thing. Even if you go to a bar, there are people who, depending on what bar you go to, mm -hmm. a lot of Christmas bars are, they're happening. And by the time that nighttime rolls around on Christmas, a lot of people are kind of done with, you know, doing family stuff and people kind of go out and it can end up being kind of a good time. But an airport is, that's rough. That's really rough. Yeah, I bet there are some people getting lit in the airport bar too, which is not a situation I would want to be in. Oh, that's a great point too, because it's almost like a justification for getting hammered, you're like, well, I gotta be in, I was forced to be in the airport on this day on it's Christmas. It's Christmas, all right, dude, go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> why, why don't you chill? You're not Santa, stop talking like that, stop asking people to sit on your lap, just take it easy, guy. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta take okay. this real quick, I gotta take this real quick. We were talking about driving and stuff. Me and Brittany had like a road trip one time to Ocala, we've gone to Ocala a couple times, and we, she came to this realization that apparently her family works out all their differences on road trips because I was just driving, like listening to a podcast and she just kind of like went off on me. I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. Let me keep tabs on that. And then like a couple hours of she like did it again. I was like, do you need to talk about something? She's like, oh, she's like, apparently road trips is where we just kind of do therapy. I was like, I'm trying to listen to Zach Lowe. <laughs> like, can we just do this at a later date? So yeah, I, I'd be flying because apparently that's something that they all do where they're just like, hey, today we're talking about something that happened in 95, strap down. <laughs> if you're driving from Atlanta to Pittsburgh, you got some time. Yeah, exactly. You got some time to have some deep conversations, man. Like that's, that's, that's a unique thing. Christmas time makes you kind of wonder about where you are in life mm -hmm. and makes you just think about a lot of different things that you've got going. 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would necessarily sign up for that. And that, that is maybe the one benefit of being on a flight is you don't necessarily have to be like, hey, let's well, let's empty the bag on these conversations <laughs> that we haven't had before. <laughs> I mean, talk, get your feelings out through that, but you know what I mean. Right. All right. If you haven't, and I should have announced this the other day, but I didn't, my bad on that, go join our Bull Mania group. It's on ESPN. The group name is 2021 SDS Podcast Bull Mania. All spaced out like you normally would expect. I don't know if that matters when you put in the group name or whatever. The password is Joe Moorhead, all one word, capital <laughs> M. You know it is. What a king. Speaking of Joe Moorhead, by the way, and oh, um, the winner of that gets a figuring out invite. It's just straight up. We're not doing confidence. First bowl game start on Friday. So by the time people are listening to this, go go do them like right now. Get that figured out as soon as possible. We'd love to be able to have like 100 people in that. That'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Joe Moorhead, he's coming next week's pod. And he ain't backing down. Great. Great interview with Joe. So good to, to be able to talk to him again. So get excited for that. We're going to start previewing some of these SEC Bowl games next week. I'm going to break it up in order instead of kind of doing it all at once with all the different moving pieces we've got going on with these opt-outs and stuff. It's it's difficult to keep this straight. So if we can kind of condense this and just go in a timely fashion, that's going to be easier for all of us to process. Still so many things to figure out with this. We'll have our guy Gary Stoken on really soon as well. Leave us a five-star review. Go subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. Subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. Wherever you get your podcast, join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.